Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're a student in Montreal in Canada in the 1950s, and you are being paid $20 a day just to lie in bed. It's a very soft bed. A very soft, mm, cozy bed but in a tiny room with a speaker playing endless white noise. Oh, and you've got goggles strapped to your eyes so that all you can see is unpatterned light and big cylindrical tube things around your hands and lower arms that stop you touching anything. Plus, there's another speaker playing an endless loop of tape with people talking about belief in the paranormal. And how long have you been in here for? Crikey, who knows? A day? A day and a night? More? A week, maybe? You might go crazy if it wasn't for the surprising new friends that you've made. Oh, look! Here they come again, at last. Hi, guys! You smile and wave as a bunch of squirrels with sacks over their shoulders come whistling across the room towards you. Hello and welcome to Patented. It's a podcast. It's about the history of inventions. It's from History Hits. I'm Dallas Campbell. I'd be totally up for that, wouldn't you? I would. $20? Yeah, bring it on. Um, This is the final episode in our mini-series all about evil inventors. Or rather, evil inventors? Question mark. We're finishing off uh, with an episode about mind control, history of mind control, and an experiment that was conducted by Canadian psychologist Donald Hebb, which was a name I wasn't familiar with, but it kick-started a, a wave of investigations into brainwashing techniques. So it's the height of the Cold War in the 1950s, and the CIA have come to the conclusion that China has developed its own nefarious brainwashing technologies. And so panicking, they turn to this guy, Hebb, who's an esteemed psychologist, and they ask him to investigate what might be possible, what can be done. And so he creates a sensory deprivation room, and he puts students inside it to test it out. And the idea is to see what happens to the brain when it is starved of everything that anchors it to reality. Of anything to see, anything to listen to, to touch or to smell, nothing to hold on to. What will happen? Will the mind drift loose? Could it be reprogrammed, as it were, like a computer hard drive? 
Well, my guest today is Charlie Williams, who's a researcher at Queen Mary University here in London, who explores the fascinating and slightly disturbing history of brainwashing in the Cold War. He's going to help us tell a story and ask, was Donald Hebb evil? Was it wrong to get into bed with the CIA, as it were, albeit a very well-padded one, and conduct this kind of research? Enjoy. Welcome to the show, Charlie. Lovely to have have you with us. Like when I was a kid, I was the the main concerns I had in life were spontaneous human combustion. That was quite worrying, and also quicksand was quite worrying. But also brainwashing was the other like primary primary concern. I don't know where did the, ter- the sort of idea of brainwashing for me. Like when I was a kid, it was a bit like uh, your, your brain was a hard drive and you could sort of wipe it and then sort of upload something else. And I remember watching One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and they, they have the kind of electrodes on the head and then McMurphy kind of walks around kind of brain dead. That was what I kind of assumed brainwashing was about. Something to be scared of plus movies. Is that about right? I mean, brainwashing is this incredibly ambiguous term that could be used for anything from i mean propaganda you know you might get like fox news saying the muppets movie is brainwashing our kids into hating rich people that's true (laughs) something along those lines and all something much more precise and scientific like someone delving a neurosurgeon going into someone's brain and removing an area that's supposedly related to a certain aspect of their thinking it's quite an evocative phrase though brainwashing isn't it just the idea of you could take the brain and and wash it somehow scrub it and clean it yeah it's interesting it it appears the term brainwashing appears in 1950 and it's often attributed to an american journalist called edward hunter um and he writes a book about the use of this new technique of brainwashing in china um and his translation comes from a Chinese term see now, which literally, literally means to wash the brain, uh, which is a kind of pun on a, an older term, which means to wash a heart. So it's during the Cold War era that's kind of defined by this idea that the Cold War is going to be a battle for hearts and minds and ideas. So this term brainwashing emerges amidst concerns about influence the power of communist propaganda and all these kind of aspects. And alongside that, you've got the growth of psychology and psychological sciences. And there's certainly a kind of feeling that psychology is going to be the new breakthrough discipline. It's already influencing many different areas of life, like in in the workplace, from recruitment to motivation studies. It's being used in advertising. It's had a big part to play in the Second World War. It's used for sort of propaganda. So 
so psychology new powerful tool so the kind of this idea that actually the newfangled science has something to say about persuasion the fact that the chinese were doing it like what was happening in china that that warranted the journalist investigating it and then we'll and then then we'll get on to donald hebb in in canada but let's i just i'm interested in 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 china was it just because china were seen as the baddies in the Cold War, along with the, the Soviets, and they must be up to nefarious things. Partly, yeah. There's kind of a, a bunch of things going on between the Soviet Union and China. It, famously, in the Great Purges under Stalinism, there's these cases of these kind of famous Bolshevik generals who are put up to trial and come out admitting to these kind of preposterous allegations and there's a theory catches hold in the West that this this isn't just like undue, well, this isn't torture. Maybe they're using much more sophisticated scientific methods. And it's often kind of related to the idea that the great Russian psychologist was Ivan Pavlov. He of the dog. He of the dog is using these kind of, not he particularly, but like the lessons of a behaviorist theory are kind of, being used to manipulate minds. And in China, there is a process that's kind of known as thought reform, which is different but involves kind of working through your life story and rewriting it over and over again. And it's kind of used as a method for to persuade dissidents or influence in doctrine. And that's what Edward Hunter is kind of talking about, but he's relating it to the Soviet Union. Okay, let's talk about Donald Hebb. So we've got we've got a little a little bit of an idea about 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 brainwashing. Donald Head. So Canada, Canada is the least pl- place where I think least about brainwashing. So who was Donald Hebb and why is he interesting in our story? So Donald Hebb is a psychologist, and by the time he kind of becomes interesting to our story, he's probably one of the most kind of certainly seen as a very famous forward-thinking psychologist. He's head of psychology at McGill University in Montreal and he is most well known for his book The Organization of Behavior in which he argues that essentially he's trying to understand how learning a kind of physiological basis of learning in the mind and he argues that when stimulation of neurons happens at the same time they start to make connections and form these things called cell assemblies um, and he argues that that's kind of the basis of all learning. And how did he, who was he? Like, how did he get interested in this branch of science? I mean, what was his, what was his background? Uh, he's kind of got an interesting early career. I mean, he's comes from, he's born in Nova Scotia. Parents are both doctors and they're interested in the teachers of, teachings of Maria Montessori. She of the school. She of the school. <laughs> he doesn't actually go to school because of this up until he's age eight. And he famously claims uh, that he taught himself to read. And he doesn't actually become a psychologist straight away. He studies English. He wants to be a writer, describes himself as a stick-it novelist, which is a a Scottish term for a a preacher who never makes it as a preacher. What was the term again? What's it called? A stick-it? A stick-it, I think. That's a great term. I'm a stick-it at many things. (laughs) I'm definitely a stick it novelist as well. <laughs> I feel that. <laughs> <laughs> stick it. Oh, that's good. That's good. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. 
One of the things that you mentioned, Charlie, was this this idea that he had about the the constant stimulation in, into the brain. Information coming in keeps the brain working. It keeps it plastic. And it, but it seemed he was. I suppose the thing that makes him famous was this idea of the effects of isolation. What happens if you turn off? all that stimulation, what happens to the brain. And I'm just curious as to where that came from. We'll come on to the the ramifications of that. But but at what point in his study do you think he thought, oh, I wonder what happens if we do that, if we just completely turn off all stimulation to the brain? What would would happen? I think partly it's kind of influenced by lots of great theories in neuroscience in particular come from something being removed on the from the brain like he's a student of Wilder Penfield who's a neurosurgeon who's treating ep- epilepsy and is interested in what happens when you in treating epilepsy what happens when you kind of remove certain aspects of the brain so I think his idea of the brain as being connected to its sensory environment is a kind of extension of that really what, what happens if you remove were people doing environment he does uh, were people doing like lobotomies at that time and you know experimenting with chopping bits yeah, and trepanning and yeah, all that kind of crazy stuff all the, all this kind of stuff lobotomies were um, a major thing well the penfield was doing these kind of extraordinary demonstrations with his patients doing open open surge like surgery under local anesthetic and he would stimulate their brain in the operating theater and try and get them and, and try and make them do things or recall things through kind of electrostimulation of the brain. So it's kind of this quite crazy, interesting era. So, so actual kind of physical people were interested in, you know, f- physically removing bits of brain, electroshock treatment, which takes us back to one flew of the cuckoo's nest, but also things like lobotomies. And was he going, was he kind of thinking, oh, I know, well, why, why don't we see what we can do without kind of physical stimulation? Was it just, a, yeah, like you say, an, an extension of that, his interest? He, he kind of, uh, he'd already done some similar research rearing animals in darkness uh, and looking at the kind of long-term effects on rats being reared in, in the dark. And it's kind of exactly why... He wants to do this study. I think it's kind of complicated, but there's famously, well, now famously, but then a secret meeting where all the sensory deprivation research comes from, which happens in Montreal. Hebb has this, he's the head of psychology at McGill, but also has this role for the Canadian Defence Research Board. And he, along with a bunch of other kind of intelligence defense officials from Canada, the US and the UK get together to discuss this problem of communist brainwashing and what could what what are the Russians doing in in the Great Purge? What's going on at these show trials? And and this is where Hebb puts forward the idea of a study. And was there okay, so the Americans come what was there communist brainwashing in a formal way going on or was this just was this kind of american fear of communism oh crikey the the reds they're doing terrible things well there was definitely coercion going on to enforce false confessions but the idea that it was kind of 
sophisticated based on like new science was kind of a a, a western paranoia i think the uh, it was more kind of on tried and tested interrogation and torture techniques that go back centuries so hebs like they come and meet heb in the ritz carlton they're all wearing dark suits they're ushered into a back room like in the beginning of indiana jones something something like that and they're, they're like crikey we, we we need we need your help the minutes of this meeting that suggest they these people are coming to heb for him to like it's more of a kind of discussion and he suggest he puts forward this idea that if you place someone in a kind of sensory or perceptual restricted environment it could he uses the phrase it might place them in a position psychologically that they become susceptible to new or different ideas that's really interesting have you ever seen the enigma of casper hauser Werner herzog film no it's really interesting it's about played by bruno s about this young man well he's a sort of teenager but he's locked in solitary confinement from birth until he's 21 without seeing another human being or anything all he has is a model horse. It's kind of, it's it's kind of that, and then and then the film is about it's a you know rather like the Elephant Man, I suppose. But it's that sort of that sort of idea that we're that we're kind of fascinated by, aren't we? The idea of like, oh, what would happen if you had absolutely no human contact or completely isolated from the world, and what would happen? Anyway, sorry, I digress. I, I'm going off on film tangents. <laughs> well, I keep thinking all these films that... that, that the history of solitude. Is- that, yeah, it's really, it's just, it's, it is one of those kind of, you know, fascinating things. It's been such a staple in popular culture. Anyway, so so with the, they have this discussion, the CIA or the, or the FBI, well, the CIA, I guess. And so he goes off and, and does some experiments to see what would happen. So maybe you could, you could tell us about what those experiments were. So you get, well, you get, you get, money from Canadian Defence Research Board. So they, yeah, that military tie comes back to bite him and the secret meeting comes back to bite him. And he does these tests and, and he doesn't really, he gets his graduate students to really kind of design and run the experiments. And they essentially involve taking a subject, all of whom were volunteers, and placing them in. So it's not really a sensory, dep- they call it perceptual deprivation rather than sensory deprivation because... Your, you have it has bright light, diffuse lights. So you wear goggles that um, only allow in a kind of like diffuse, bright, unpatterned light. They covered their arms in soft material, so you don't really feel anything, and play white noise, and essentially leave them for up to a day or so. And what they found, it's interesting if you kind of look at the pictures, or oh, oh, you get. It all looks very kind of... I've, yeah, I've Googled a picture. I'll describe it. So it's, you're in a kind of bed thing, like a sarcophagus thing, like an open sarcophagus, and you've got like white that look like big cardboard tubes on your arms. You're kind of strapped down like you would be in a gurney onto a operate onto an electric, you know... I, I think table. in these ones they weren't strapped down. And then you've got this kind of weird helmet thing, which is... Well, no, it's like a kind of... C-shaped cushion thing that goes over your ears, like like kind of like big ridiculous headphones. If you're a hipster, yeah, yeah. And the result is what they find, kind of unsurprisingly, is that it was really horrible. It sucks. Yeah, <laughs> and people report having kind of visual disturbances, seeing things, bunch of squirrels marching through the snow, 
the sacks over their shoulders is one of the kind of phrases that gets reported again and again. Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Was the, I mean, obviously, you know, when you go and I don't know if you've ever been in a sensory deprivation tank, is it was the idea that it would be very, very stressful rather than very, very relaxing? Like, what was the what would it feel like? I mean, this, this feel sounds a lot more stressful than being in a kind of out of this kind of two approaches the kind of dark room, floaty version, and this kind of perceptual deprivation, white noise, and I mean, that sounds a lot more stressful, right? But the idea wasn't particularly to kind of stress people out. It was more to just to see what their reaction was. And the, the idea of su- su- suggestibility, which is what I'm interested in. I mean, because I, I mean, I when I was reading about this, they did things that like they would play them things like like stories of supernaturalism and then and then when they stopped the experiment they would suddenly be much more susceptible to supernatural stories and stories of ghosts and that kind of thing was that the idea to that idea of kind of brainwashing it's like cleaning the brain so you could then implant new information there's not a huge amount of kind of deep theoretical thinking around this at the, certainly at the time but yeah the idea that if you kind of place someone in a kind of restricted environment they'll be open to kind of new thoughts and that they'll be so kind of eager for some sort of stimulation that it's going to be imprinted on the brain much ah, yeah much more powerfully so basically the brain needs to be stimulated all the time is the is, is the upshot that's yeah that's kind of like and i think that's from a scientific perspective what they wanted to show from the beginning if you put aside the kind of propaganda brainwashing element he was kind of pushing against a kind of behaviorist idea that the mind would kind of shut down without stimulus. I wanted to show that it was always kind of active and kind of seeking some form of stimulus. If I was at that university, I would have totally done it because apparently they got paid $20 a day to, to, for students to be in, do that, and which is, yeah, I'd do that. I remember getting paid about 20 quid a day when I was a student in order to, to be in police lineups. That was a that was a kind of money making exercise. <laughs> this sounds like if it was, someone said you can have twenty quid and you just got to lie in bed all day, I'd be like, yes, but there'll be white noise. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people couldn't do it because they found it so boring. Like they really, really struggled with it. Others hated the and in, in the, some the kind of dark room ones, people found it incredibly rea- relaxing. So you kind of get all these. A very mixed picture of results that kind of actually comes out of this. But the ones that get reported are the most sensational ones. Well, give us so, give us. Did he have to sort of report back to the CIA or the US military or whoever and say, okay, we've done these experiments. Here's our results. What were the results? What was the kind of upshot? And then how was how was that used by government nefarious government agencies? Well, the upshot is that the mind does need stimulus. And without it, we'll 
kind of go into a kind of disorientated state. And then he, he kind of made the, the group, made these kind of claims that weren't particularly rigorous about the impact of these propaganda things. And they, they said that some people had been influenced and, and came to believe in ghosts, which was part of the kind of propaganda. Yeah. And <laughs> some people still do believe in ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> Or they used telepathy to try and play poker. But this was kind of yeah. sort of anecdotal stuff. And the, the, what's interesting, I guess, about these experiments is when people try to do them again, that they can't really replicate them in the same way. It's a much more kind of mixed picture. I read that there's some, I can't remember who it was who said, I mean, you know, that we're, we're in the 1950s and it was all these new programs that were developed around mind control and brainwashing. It was known as the sort of Manhattan Project of the Mind, taking us back to Oppenheimer. Is that fair? It seems there seemed to be a lot of excitement. I mean, the, the, the most famous one, I suppose, was MK Ultra, which was the one. Was that the one they used LSD? They were think, using psychedelics and. Yeah, I mean that's kind of, yeah a broad program funded by the CIA significantly um, to kind of understand indoctrination methods of indoctrination and methods of mind manipulation and um, that could be used in interrogation. And that they claim it's kind of like for counter-offensive purposes to, to protect. And this is what Hebb kind of always argues. It's like, we need to let people know about this in case they're in for brainwashing in the future. Was he, I mean, was he part of the, the political side of this? I mean, obviously you've got government agents who, as you say at the beginning, were wanting to understand and develop mind control techniques in order to combat the Soviet and the, 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 the red peril. Was Teb part of that? Was he completely, no, 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 I'm just in it for the science? I think both. It's hard to kind of say, I wouldn't say he's kind of particularly interesting politically or has a kind of major stance. You've got to remember, it's kind of a, a very different era where the people kind of do buy into this kind of fear of communism. And I think he probably did think it was important research to kind of combat this potential new weapon of brainwashing. But he also was quite open later on that it was never as powerful as a lot of people made out to be. What's the the, the legacy? I mean, all this and all this new knowledge we've gained about the brain from his and, and from sensory deprivation, or you know, from, from isolation, I suppose. What is that? What science did we learn, and how is that taken on and used in? military and political situations? So sensory deprivation and isolation has this kind of scientific, it has this kind of big moment after Head publishes the results and his students. Lots of different places, particularly in North America, universities, hospitals, start to do their own research in this area. So you get, and this is where you get like all these different kinds of techniques, submerging people in water, placing someone in a kind of dark, like anechoic chamber environment. And again, the, a lot of these are funded through military funds, which kind of is part of the aspect that's kind of made them so controversial. But the big kind of turning point in this story happens in 1971, where British detain a whole bunch of people suspected of being involved in the IRA in Northern Ireland and practice this interrogation method called interrogation in depth, which involves white noise, hooding, placing people in stress positions to try and get information out of them. And it's kind of a huge controversy. Lots of people, particularly in the scientific community, 
in psychology, you start to look back and go, where is this coming from? And that's when they start to kind of look back at the sensory deprivation. But then, of course, from North, as if we're from Northern Ireland, we, we, you know, we see it in lots of areas of conflict. And so I remember in sort of Guantanamo after 9-11, there were you know, reports of, in, in Iraq mistreatment of prisoners and exactly as you as you described things like solitary confinement stress positions hoodings moving prisoners from area to area so they become disorientated white noise sleep deprivation all these things have become sort of unfortunately familiar when we when we think about wars and and torture and these sorts of things yeah that's the great debate around this area is kind of what was the impact of these techniques on torture uh, and because a lot of these things a lot of, what was the impact of the research on torture sorry because a lot of these things were kind of around before and like they kind of make sense as being kind of stressful and difficult so i think experts in torture have described it more as a kind of craft than a kind of science it's like it's works on this kind of relationship between the interrogator and interrogatee, it's like builds on kind of age-old methods. The question of whether research like sensory deprivation improved it, it's hard to make a strong claim. I think what there is a strong claim okay. to make is that it kind of legitimized the use of these techniques because it made them seem clinical, not kind of barbaric, made them seem kind of acceptable. Legitimizes them. Where, um, Donald Hebb, where does he fit into the story? I mean, if, you know, when we think about, well, we, you mentioned Oppenheimer, we, we, we kind of partly re- held him responsible for nuclear weapons. And we always like, well, was he evil? Was he terrible? He did this terrible thing. Where, 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 where would you put Donald Hebb in that? I mean, he, as, the, as the, the scientist and legitimizer of, of brainwashing and mind control, does he, have a, does he have a case to answer for? Is he an evil genius? Is he just a product of political circumstance? I wouldn't put him down as an evil genius or, I mean, for his early research, probably more of a genius than anything to do with sensory deprivation, which, like, scientifically was had less of an impact. But what he does ha- go on from Hebb, a number of people who kind of take this research to the extreme, famously... Ewan Cameron, who's also at McGill, he's a psychiatrist whose research was funded by the CIA. And although he wasn't his only a slightly interested in sensory deprivation, he did these kind of quite grotesque experiments around what he called psychic driving, which involved playing looped tapes of messages to patients whilst they're sleeping, keeping them unconscious for hours, if not days, with these messages being played to them putting them in kind of very stressful environments, using sensory deprivation as well. So I think Heb has kind of often been like related to these people, partly because of the McGill Association and because of that kind of secret military association. Charlie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Just what would you, in terms of further reading for our listeners, if they if they want to understand a little bit more about about the history of mind control and brainwashing and these these psychological techniques, where would you... Where would you point them? I would go to possibly John Marks, wrote a kind of extraordinary piece of journalism in 1977, which kind of exposed a lot of the MK Ultra research. If you want to understand more about the brainwashing, I'd certainly say my former supervisor's book, Daniel Pick, Brainwash, and watch a whole bunch of films. <laughs> my top tip, 
The Enigma of Casper <laughs> yeah. Hauser. That's great. It's not really about brainwashing, but it is about sen- sensory deprivation. And there's loads of good books out there and reading. So there are there are. It's a re- it's one of the, it is a fascinating topic. It, it's really interesting, and it's lovely to get a little bit of background into it. You know, it's one of those topics that seeps into popular culture, into our popular imagination as to all these nefarious goings on and charlie it's been a pleasure thank you so much for coming on thank you dallas and talking about donald hebb somebody i'd never heard i'd never heard of and 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 but yet he's he's plugged into all this stuff which has fascinated me for a long time so thank you for bringing him to light thank you thanks for having me on so that's it there we go. Thank you very much, Charlie. Thank you very much to you for listening. Hope that wasn't too disturbing. Consider yourself well and truly brainwashed. Consider yourself reprogrammed. Reprogrammed so much that you will absolutely, without hesitation, listen to our next episode, whatever that might be. We've finished our little mini series on uh, evil inventors, so it'll be something completely different. Thank you very much for your company. It is hugely, hugely appreciated. And I look forward to seeing you, well, not seeing you, but talking to you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.